0: So go ahead and turn to Daniel chapter 8, Daniel chapter 8. And today, in the message, we're going to be talking about three different farm animals. Three different farm animals. You'll know what I'm talking about as we get further along here. But to start out the message today, I thought it'd be appropriate to to share my one and only farm story, my personal farm story. And so uh, when I was about, probably about seven years old, I visited with my family my Uncle Bill's dairy farm. Now, I'd only met him like once or twice up to that point and even after that. Didn't know him very well, uh, but he had this dairy farm in New Jersey. So for a couple of days, one summer, my family drove up to New Jersey And I have three distinct memories that that I want to share briefly. So first of all, on the first morning there at Uncle Bill's farm, I was taking a shower, and very quickly I realized that the shower had turned cold. And at breakfast shortly after, I found out that Uncle Bill doesn't approve of long showers. In fact, if they're more than five minutes, he turns off the hot water. Thank you, Uncle Bill, for letting me know about that. Later in the day, I was walking around the farm with my uh, brothers, my older and younger brother, and we see this fence here. And there's nothing real impressive about the fence. They have just a few thin wires going across. And so I decided that I wanted to get across to see the cows. And so I go to pick up the wire to sort of get through, but I don't make it because I am suddenly shocked with electricity, because I find out that it is apparently an electric fence. Later on, Uncle Bill warned everyone to stay clear of the electric fence. Again, thank you, Uncle Bill. Lastly, at some point during the trip, and I think I've shared this story in the past, but in the cow barn, and I'm sure I'm using the wrong phrases here, but my brothers and I were sort of chasing each other around, walking around and everything, and the cows were all sort of facing forward, and there was this path in between what they were facing, but behind them, there were these big uh, pits, like, sort of like, sort of like um, baby pools, and it would catch all the cow poo. And as I was playing, I was hopping behind the cows from ledge to ledge by the, by the cow poo there. And at one point, I slip, and I fall face first into, into the poo pit. So I don't know what happened. I'm usually very good with my balance, and I, I, yeah, I don't know what happened there. But I fell straight down, and I ran out of the barn crying, covered in poo. And so Uncle Bill grabs the garden hose and gives it to my parents to spray me down, because apparently I'm not worthy of a warm shower to be comforted, so I was sprayed down like one of those prisoners that you might see in the movies. So needless to say, I've never been a big farm guy. Never been a big animal guy. Uh, I don't like dogs, and I would be perfectly happy if I never saw a cow or a farm again. And so it's with much sadness today that the title of my sermon is The Ram, the Goat, and the Lamb, because we're going to see history and the future through these three animals. And while at first glance what we're going to see here is going to seem a little strange, we're going to see some important truths come out of this passage here. But before I go into the passage, I need to remind everyone what we're reading here. So Daniel 1 through 6 had some awesome stories. But when we got to chapter 7, we started into a new genre where Daniel was having what we call apocalyptic visions. And apocalyptic literature is different than than just normal stories. And so these types of sermons and these types of passages are going to be just a little bit drier. So I'm I'm warning you ahead of time. And and they're a little bit harder to understand, a little bit more difficult to press through. But if we will press through and learn what we're learning here in Daniel 7, Daniel 8, and in the coming chapters, we will benefit greatly. You may ask, how are we going to benefit greatly? Well, not only are we going to see some great application come out of chapter 8, but how many of you have ever tried to read Revelation before and gotten just a little bit mixed up? Anyone? Oh, I, I know there's more of you than that. <laughs> Revelation is difficult to understand, but here's the thing. Revelation is better understood once we learn Daniel. Because Daniel here in chapters 7 through 12, in Daniel, we actually get some interpretation from the divisions from the, the, the here. Once we get to Revelation, the interpretation starts to drop off. And so if we can learn Daniel, and if we can learn what's being taught in Daniel, we'll we'll be able to better understand Revelation when we dive into that in the future. So there's a lot we can benefit, but I'm warning you ahead of time. As I'm pressing through these sermons, I, I practiced with my wife last night, and I was like, I told her, I said, it's boring, isn't it? And she's, she's my wife, so she's like, no, no, it's great, it's great, it's great. But it, it's, it's tough, it's tough to, to um, sort of press on through apocalyptic literature. So I'm just telling you ahead of time, but pre- let's press on and let's learn it. So I talked about last week how apocalyptic literature is very symbolic. It's not meant to be taken literally. So there's a lot of symbolism here, and we're using understandable terms to reveal or to show things that are hard to understand. For example, uh, how might you describe a juicy pineapple to an Eskimo from a hundred years ago? Well, it would be a little tough, wouldn't it? And so I thought about it and I thought, uh, well, it's, first of all, it's a large frozen snowball and has pointy icicles on the outside. And the icy outside though has a sweet, watery inside. And when you cut into the pineapple, water pours out as if you had just sliced the neck of a polar bear. That's my description there. (laughs) Maybe you don't like it, but I think my Eskimo from 100 years ago would understand. And so again, we're using descriptions and ideas that people would understand To then illustrate things that are harder to understand. And so let's keep that in mind as we go through the chapter. Uh, Again, like last week, I'm gonna be summarizing parts of it so that we keep this in a shorter amount of time here. But starting in verse three, let me go ahead and read this. Daniel says, I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. And it had two horns and both horns were high but one was higher than the other and the higher one came up last so here we have our first animal the ram and the ram is standing there with his big horns again the horns represent strength there it's a strong ram and in the coming verses, the next few verses, we see that the ram charges north and charges south and charges west there. And there's no other beast or no other person that could stand before this ram. And we might say this ram is the ram. He's the ram there because he's the boss. But then comes a goat. Wait a second here. I don't know about you, but... but. Uh, I think that a ram is more powerful than a goat, but it's going to be a little different here in this verse. Verse 5, as I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between its eyes. Now, I don't know about you, but that goat sounds a little strange, doesn't it? But in this vision here, this goat is going to do some, uh, some, some beating up of the ram. And in the next couple of verses, there's going to be like a WWE showdown of the ram versus the goat, and it's no match for the goat. The goat is going to win. He beats up the ram, breaks his horns, and then he tramples on them. And so now the goat is the goat. He's the beast in charge. But here's where it gets even a little more strange. Verse 8. Then the goat became exceedingly great. And when he was strong, the great horn was broken. And instead of it, came, there came up four conspicuous, I might say mutated horns, toward the four winds of heaven. So after this, then one more little horn, little, to- little tiny horn comes up, and this is in verse 9 or 10. I was thinking, I, maybe some of you are more spiritual than me. So you haven't watched uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail. But when I grew up, that was a big, that was a big show for us high schoolers to watch and talk about. Um, and in this, there's this one scene where they come up on this little cave. And this one guy's saying, he's dangerous. He's going to kill you. Be careful. And then comes out a little rabbit, a little cute bunny. And they're all looking at him. They're like, he's not scary. And it turns out, if you've seen it, Uh, he is scary. Stay away from him, okay? But this is sort of like, you know, there's these four horns. And then we have this one little horn come up. And this is what happens. Verse 9, out of one of them came a little horn, which grew exceedingly great toward the south, toward the east toward the glorious land, which is uh, Canaan or Jerusalem. It grew great, even to the host of heaven. And some of the hosts and some of the stars, it threw down to the ground and trampled on them. So this one grows big. <clears throat> it's exceedingly great. And it goes all around, particularly towards Israel. And it attacks people, including In the verses, it says it attacks the people of God, the Israelites. Verse 13 and 14, a a voice comes out and asks, How long will this last? How long will the sanctuary be trampled on? And we'll see more about that in just a moment. But then another voice comes and says, For 2,300 evenings and mornings, then the sanctuary shall be restored to its rightful place. And that right there is the vision. It's clear as mud, right? Yes. Thankfully though, just like the last chapter, the vision is interpreted by someone in the coming verses. And really, if you were here last week, you can take a lot of the same interpretations from last week of these beasts and apply them to these animals on the, in this chapter. And so if you learned a little bit from last week, you have a uh, a, a, a sort of your step ahead here for this week. And so let's move on to the interpretation. And in verse 15, Daniel, like probably many of us want to know what in the world's going on, what's happening here. And so a man appears who calls for the angel Gabriel to come and explain things. Verse 17. So he came near where I stood. This is Gabriel. And when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. And so the angel Gabriel, and this is the very angel that would in a few hundred years, 500 or so years, appear to Zachariah and appear to Mary as well. He appears to Daniel. And he explains the dream to Daniel and he says, 19, behold, I will make known to you what shall be at the latter end of the indignation for it refers to the appointed time of the end. Now, what do we think of when we hear someone say the end time? We think of the end times, right? That, that's just like when, when the the time around when Jesus is going to return, or when he returns, and there's a big showdown, as we see in, in in Revelation and all that. But the angel here is actually not referring to what I call I'll call it the end end times. He's not referring to the absolute end times when Jesus returns. You may say, How do I know that? Because in the in, in coming verses, in the interpretation here. Gabriel's going to give an interpretation that points more towards the coming 500 or so years for the Israelites. And why does he call it the end times? My answer is, I don't know. I don't know. But from his perspective, from Daniel's perspective, that is considered the end times from what Gabriel is saying. So Gabriel in verse 20 says, that the ram with the two horns represents the kings of the Medes and the Persians. And that's in the 500 BCs. And by the way, if you have your bulletin in the teaching sheet, uh, you can get some of this information here that I'm sort of uh, telling real quickly. And so in verse 21, then he says that the goat is the king of Greece. The king of Greece in the 300s is Alexander the Great. And so, both of these animals are not referring to the end-end times, but to just future times from Daniel's perspective. So, Daniel lived in the, in the 500s BC, uh, and the, the Greeks, led by Alexander the Great, were in the 300s. We're talking about 200 years later. The Medes and the Persians. We saw a story of them in chapter 5 or 6, where they overcame, where they conquered King Belshazzar. And so they were in the 500s. So we got the 500s, and then we have the 300s. And so this is in the future, some short-term future, some getting a little further. But then after the goat, there's the four horns. And Gabriel says in verse 22, as for the horn that was broken in place of which four others arose, four kingdoms shall rise from his nation, but not with his power. And we know from history that four kingdoms came out of uh, Alexander the Great's kingdom after he died. So when he died, no one replaced him. And in fact, the kingdom was broken up into four different parts. And then after that, there's that horn, that little horn that causes so much trouble. Verse 23, a king of bold face, one who understands riddles shall arise. His power shall be great but not by his own power, Uh, referring to, and I'll talk more about this in a moment, but referring to really to demonic influence in his life. And he shall cause fearful destruction and shall succeed in what he does and destroy mighty men and the people who are the saints. By his cunning, he shall make deceit prosper under his hand and in his own mind, he shall become great. And without warning, he shall destroy many, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes. And Gabriel, the angel, doesn't specify who this is going to be or which kingdom it's going to be, but almost every single, actually every single commentary that I read on this passage uh, is unanimous with who they believe this person is. And they're referring to Uh, Someone named uh, Antiochus Epiphanes, and if you're a history buff, I recognize that his name is pronounced about 17 different ways, and so I'm possibly not pronouncing it the way that you like. So they they, uh, have uh, Antiochus and Antiochus and so on. I'm just going to go with the one that's easy for me. And he ruled the Seleucid Empire in around 175 B.C. to 164 B.C., And so one person, one commentary wrote about him uh, and, and said, had some not nice things to say about him. Antiochus Epiphanes was violently bitter against the Jews. He hated them and was determined to exterminate them in their religion. He devastated Jerusalem in 168 BC, murdered tens of thousands, defiled the temple, offered a pig on its altar erected a shrine to Jupiter, prohibited temple worship, forbade circumcision on pain of death, sold 40,000 Jews into slavery, destroyed all copies of scripture that could be found, and slaughtered everyone to be in possession with God's Torah, with, with the Old Testament. He resorted to every conceivable torture to force Jews to renounce their religion. And so this guy was a prideful, hateful, demonically influenced, ruthless person who hated the Jews. And this person continues until God steps in. Verse 25, and he shall be broken, but not by human hand, or but by no human hand. And we know from history that the Maccabean revolt took place in 164 BC. And Judas uh, uh, Maccabees would lead the Jews to victory to restore their religion. In fact, the Jews celebrate Hanukkah because of the victory in 164. So there you go, a little history lesson for some of you. But notice Gabriel says, he says, and he shall be broken by Maccabees. Is that what he says? No, he says by no human hand. So, so I was a little confused at first because Maccabees led the revolt and they conquered him. But why does it say in verse 25 by no human hand? And the answer comes from a non-biblical writing called the Apocrypha. The Apocrypha has a history that I can't get into today, but in your teaching sheets, there is a link to some information on the Apocrypha. And if you come from a Catholic background, you may recognize some of the writings because it's in Catholic Bibles. But uh, not to get into it, those writings weren't put in until about 500 years after the Bible was solidified and, 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 and made. A little, bit, a little bit less than that. But anyway, you can go and learn more later in the link there. But in the Apocrypha, which would many, most would agree is not 100% reliable. There are some errors in it. But the writing here at least gives us an idea of a, of a possibility of what happened to Antiochus Epiphanes. And this, is, this comes from the Apocrypha. It says, but the all-seeing Lord, the God of Israel, struck him an incurable and unseen blow. As soon as he ceased speaking, he was seized with a pain In his bowels, for which there was no relief and with sharp internal tortures. And that very justly, for he had tortured the bowels of others with many and strange afflictions, inflictions. Yet he did not in any way stop his insolence. But he was even more filled with arrogance, breathing fire and raging in his rage against the Jews and giving orders to hasten to hasten the journey. And so it came about that he fell out of his chariot as he was rushing along, and the fall was so hard as to torture every limb in his body. So again, this is from a non-biblical source, but it hopefully at least gives us a clue about what happened to him. And if this is true, then what happened to him is that during the revolt, God stepped in and took him out. Looks like took him out with bad hemorrhoids and then kicked him off the chariot and got him run over. That's my interpretation. Again, also not very reliable. But combined with what he says, with what that says, with Daniel 8.25, the Maccabees led the revolt, but God is the one that killed the leader there, Antiochus. And so to summarize this vision here, the ram, the goat, and the horns all represent kings, and all kings in between about 500 and 100 B.C. And the little horn would cause the most problems for Israel around 175 to 164 B.C. And from Daniel's perspective, there would be much, much, much suffering in Israel's future. I'm going to come back to the final verse of the chapter in just a moment. But I want to ask a very important question for us. And the question is, so what? So what? What is all of this? What does all of this have to do with us? And as I said, if if the timing is true of what I just said, then all of these are in our past. And so what can we as 21st century Christians, take away from visions of Israel from 2,500 uh, 2500 years ago. And so I want to give you three takeaways that we can put and uh, apply to our own lives. And here's the first one. And that is, first of all, the reliability of God's word. The reliability of God's word. So as I mentioned, Daniel lived in the 500s. The prophecies that they that that, that were given to him took place hundreds of years later, and it would be easy for us now, thousands of years later, to overlook this. But this chapter speaks of countries that would be conquered and conquered other countries hundreds of years before it happened, and so let's not miss the fact here that these prophecies are true and happened. I came across an article that talked about really bad predictions that people have given over time. So I I pulled a few of them out for for us uh, today here. And here's a few of them. So uh, in 1954, Secretary of State John Foster Dulles said this, the Japanese don't make anything that people in the U.S. would want. Time proved he was wrong. In 1955... Uh, Alex Lewitt, uh, president of the Lewitt vacuum cleaner company, told the New York Times this, nuclear powered vacuum cleaners would probably be a reality within 10 years. And let me tell you, if that had happened, my house would be cleaned. (laughs) My poor Dyson can't can't handle our house, but a nuclear powered Dyson, um, I would have gotten one of those. In 1959, author Summerfield, who was the U.S. Postmaster General under Eisenhower, said this, before man reaches the moon, your mail will be delivered within hours from New York to Australia by guided missiles. We stand at the threshold of rocket mail. And I feel like it's sort of gone the opposite since then, probably. In 1995, Bob, Bob Metcalf of InfoWorld said this about the internet. I predict the internet will go spectacularly supernova, and in 1996, catastrophically collapse. Did not happen that way. And he was literally predicting one year, less than a year ahead. So what do we all agree here? That people can say anything. And they're not always right. People can say anything, yet in the Bible, what people say keeps proving correct over and over and over again. For a long time, his, historians said that the Edomites, this is from the Old Testament, uh, they were often getting in conflict, uh, in conflict with the Israelites. They, the historians said, they're nomadic people. There's no way that they could be waging war against Israel. And so they said the Bible must be wrong. It's obviously wrong because it portrays the Edomites as a cohesive society that's able to attack Israel multiple times. And for a while, they seemed correct, according to history. However, that recently changed when Dr. Thomas Levy of the University of California started doing radiocarbon testing on a recently excavated site. And he found that the Edomites were likely an advanced society as early as 12th century B.C. So in other words, the Bible was correct all along. The Bible was correct. So church, the Word of God is reliable. And since it's reliable, what should we be doing? We should be reading it. We should be trusting it. We should be obeying it. Because... No one and nothing else will be as reliable as what God's word says. And so let's dig into it and learn from it. Here's takeaway number two. Even in the bad times, keep going about your business. And if you have a teaching sheet, there's a, a little typo there. So you can, add, you can add in the word in. Even in the bad times, keep going about your business. After this dreadful vision here of the future, Daniel was uh, understandably very upset. So let's look at what he did in verse 27. This is the last verse of the chapter. He said, And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. But then I rose and went about the king's business. And I was appalled by the vision and did not understand it. Now, at first, Daniel mourned because he knew that his people... We're going to suffer greatly in the future. But after that period of sadness, what did he do? He got up and he went back to his job. I read a story about uh, John Wesley. He's a a pastor and evangelist. um, And uh, a couple hundred years ago, and he was riding a horse to one of his preaching engagements. And he was stopped by a stranger on the way. And the stranger asked him, what he would do if he knew that Christ was going to return at noon the next day. So Wesley uh, reached into his bag, pulled out his, his diary there that had a, a list of all his engagements, and he went ahead and he read all the engagements that he had for that day and for the next morning. And then he said, that dear sir is what I would do. In other words, he was living in a way that was ready for God to come back. And he was just going to keep doing what he was just going to keep doing. And Daniel knew that he, or that his people were in trouble in the future. And it saddened him greatly. It broke his heart to know what was going to happen to them. But what did he do? He got up after morning, and he went back to his business. Because he knew, that he knew that what he was doing was God's will for his life, was what God was calling him to do. Notice that Daniel, at that point, didn't drop everything and become a traveling evangelist or prophet, telling them, repent because this is what's going to happen to you, Israelites. No, he just kept doing his job. And I want to encourage each of us to do the same. And so if you're a business person, keep doing your business for the glory of God. If you're a carpenter, keep carpentering for the glory of God. If you're a teacher, keep teaching for the glory of God. Because in the midst of trouble, I want to encourage each of us, just keep pressing on. Again, there's a time for mourning. There's a time for sadness. But keep pressing on and doing what God is calling you to do you may say, well, I don't think I'm doing what God, I'm supposed to be doing what God is calling me to do. I would say, well, well, change it now. Then change that. But keep doing what God is calling you to do, even in the midst of difficulty. And so don't let sin get you off track what God is calling you to do. Don't let suffering get you off track what God is calling you to do. Keep doing it as long as God calls you to do it here's the third and the last takeaway and that is the lamb is victorious in the end so if you saw the title of the sermon is the ram the goat and the lamb but we never saw a lamb did we that's because the lamb didn't quite enter at that part of the story now the ram was powerful but it didn't last The the, the goat was even more powerful, but that goat didn't last. The four horns that came out of the goat, they were powerful, but didn't last. And then that one little horn that came out was powerful and was scary, but even in the end, that didn't last. See, none of these will last in the end. The lamb is the one that's going to be victorious. Verse 25 and he, uh, and he shall even rise up against the prince of princes, and he shall be broken, but by no human hand. I like how one commentary summarizes this chapter. The final word is not had by the ram or the goat, but by the lamb. And churches, as long as we are on this earth, There's going to be kingdoms, there's going to be animals, so to speak, rising up and causing problems. And there will be suffering as we go throughout this life. But no matter what, they will not win. And in the end, the ram will not be standing. In the end, the goat will not be standing. In the end, it's the lamb that's going to be victorious in Revelation 22, speaking of the end end here, says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of what? The Lamb! The lamb through the middle of the street of the city. And no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And His servants will worship Him. that." is the future and that is what we can put our hope in no matter what happens now the end is already fixed the lamb will be victorious and so for all of us i want to ask you are you living in that way in other words is your life reflecting that the lamb will win and if you've never done so I want to encourage you to to give him your life today, to put your trust and your hope and your faith in Jesus and make him your Lord. And when you do that, your your sins are forgiven and you are adopted into his family. And by the way, you're on the winning team then as well. But many others here today who've come for this church service to worship God, many of you have already put your faith in him, but, but maybe some of you are not living like the lamb is going to win. Maybe you're living in fear about the future. Maybe you're living in sin because you're you're, you're putting everything on what you want. Listen, it's the lamb that's going to win. And so let's live like that and let's follow him. Amen. Let's go ahead and pray. And I'm going to ask the worship team to come on up.